Welcome back. For today's episode of our Beyond the Lecture podcast, our producer Yuyana Shallow sat down with Fall 2021 fellow Lady Hubbard. Based in New Orleans, Lady is an award-winning author of literary fiction and most famous for her two novels, The Talented Ripkins and The Rip King. As a very special treat, you will get to hear Lady read from The Last Suspicious Holdout, her forthcoming collection of short stories that chronicles 15 years of the lives of an African-American community in the South. The book is about to be published on March 8th and is now available for pre-order wherever you get your books. Enjoy. This is actually the first story in the collection. Every story takes place or is set in a particular year. And the book as a whole moves from 1992 to 2007. So this is Flip Lady, and it's 1992. One, history. Raymond Brown hears the sound of laughter. He puts down his book and looks out the window. Here they come now, children of the ancient ones, the hewers of wood, the cutters of cane, barreling down the sidewalk on their huffies and schwens, little legs pumping over fat rubber tires, brakes squealing as they pull into the drive, standing on tiptoes as they straddle their bikes and stare at the house with their mouths hanging open, just like before. Some of them he still recognizes. He made out with that girl's sister in the seventh grade, played basketball with that boy's uncle in high school. This one was all right until his brother joined the army. That one was okay until her daddy went to jail. And you see that girl in the back, the chubby one standing by the curb next to the brand new Schwen. She hasn't been the same since the invasion of Grenada nine years ago in 1983. The Spice Island. When the Marines landed, she was living in St. George's near the medical clinic with her mother, the doctor, and Aunt Ruby, the nurse. The power went off, the hospital plunging into blue darkness while machine gun fire cackled in the distance like a bag of Jiffy Pop bubbling up on a stove. Oh no, Aunt Ruby said, just like before. It's all there in the book on his lap, colonizers fanning out across the Atlantic like a hurricane, not exactly hungry but looking for spice. They claimed the land, they built the plantations, they filled the islands up with slaves. Sugar kept the workers happy, distracted them from grief. And 400 years later, you have your military invasions and McDonald's Happy Meals, your ho-hos and preemptive strikes, your Oreos and Reaganomics, your cap and crunch, and Kool-Aid. These kids can't get enough of it. They sit in the driveway, they shift in their seats, they grip the plastic streamers affixed to their handlebars. One of them kicks a kickstand and steps forward, fingers curled into a small, tight fist as he knocks on the kitchen door. Flip lady, you in there? Just like before. They roam the entire earth in search of spice, so why not here, why not now? Flip lady, you home? It's me, Calvin. For the past few weeks, they've been coming almost every day. Raymond closes the curtain. He shakes his head and turns towards the darkness of a back bedroom. Mama! It's those fucking kids again. Two, the squeal of old mattress coils, a single bang of a headboard against a bedroom wall. 
The flip lady wills herself upright, sets her feet on the floor, sits on the edge of her bed and stares at the chip polish on her left big toe. She stands up, reaches for her slippers, straightens out her green house dress and walks out the bedroom door. She shuffles into the living room where her 19-year-old son Raymond sits on a low couch reading. Long brown body hunched forward, elbows resting on his knees as he peers at a page of the book on his lap. In an instant, his life flashes through her mind in a series of, of fractured images like a VHS tape on rewind. She sees him at 16, face hidden behind a comic book, then at seven when his feet barely touch the floor, and before that as a chubby toddler gripping the cushions with fat, meaty fists, laughing as he hoisted himself onto the couch. Without breaking her stride and for want of anything else to say, she mutters, I see you reading, and passes into the kitchen. The flip lady lifts a pickle jar full of loose change from the counter and looks out the kitchen window. That you, Calvin? She says to the boy standing on her porch. Afternoon, ma'am, Calvin smiles. She twists the lid off the jar, opens the kitchen door, and squints at the multitude assembled in her backyard. Calvin plunges his hands into his pants pocket and pulls out a fistful of dimes. He drops them into her jar with a series of empty pings. Well, all right then, the flip lady says. Calvin glances over his shoulder and winks. She walks toward her refrigerator while Calvin stands in the doorway. He cocks his head and peers past her into the living room. He sees glass angel figurines and the tea set on the lace doily in the cabinet against the wall. Bronze baby shoes mounted on, uh, on a nearby wooden plaque. Framed high school graduation photos. Sears portraits of her two sons sitting on top of the TV set. A stack of LPs lined up on the floor, a dark green lazy boy recliner in the corner, and along the far wall, a plaid couch where her younger son sits with a book on his lap. He turns back and sees the flip lady standing in the middle of her bright yellow kitchen, easing two muffin trays stuffed with Dixie cups out of her freezer. The flip lady watches Calvin scoop the cups out of, his tra out of the trays, licking his lips, eyes lit up like birthday candles. She smiles. Her boys were the same way when they were that age, crowding around her back door with all their friends, giddy with excitement as they sucked on her homemade popsicles. She used to hand them out when their friends came over to play after school and on weekends. It was a way to keep them in her backyard where she could watch them from the kitchen window. Being a good mother, she wanted to know how her boys passed their time and with whom. She wanted to memorize their playmates' faces and study their gestures until she felt confident she could tell the clever from the calculated, the dreamy-eyed from the dangerous, the quiet from the cruel. She hadn't done it for money. No one had to thank her, although her neighbors told her many times how much they appreciated her looking out for their children that way. The Fripp Lady frowns. Of course, everything does change eventually. There comes a time when a mother has to accept that the promise of sugary sweets has lost its ability to soothe all grief. They don't want your Kool-Aid anymore. They busy. They got other things to do. One day, you find yourself standing alone in the kitchen, hand wrapped around a cold cup, melting ice dripping down your fingers as you wonder to yourself when exactly the good little boys standing on your back porch became the big bad men walking out your front door. She looks at Calvin, 
How was school today, son? You studying hard? Being a good boy? Doing what your mama tells you? Yes, ma'am. Calvin walks around passing out Dixie cups to his friends. Well, all right then, the flip lady says. That was Flip Lady, yes. a short story from the forthcoming collection, The Last Suspicious Holdout. Mm -hmm. And I already loved that one very much when you read it during your lecture and the novel you're working on right now. At the American Academy in Berlin is The Descendants, and yes. it places the 1980s war on drugs in dialogue with the history of African-Americans subjected to drug trials and medical experiments. And I'm quite curious how these two, the short story collection and the novel you're working on right now, how they are connected. What are the thematic links between them? Can you tell us more about that? Yes, well, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that the, the short story collection is all, all of the stories take place in the same community. And together they're, they're trying to chronicle the transformation of the community over a very specific period of time. And it's, a, in my opinion, like a very important moment in African-American cultural history. So I was really interested in this period where there was a transition from post-civil rights movement to, to post-racialism. So it ends on the eve of Obama's election. And as a whole, the way I initially conceived it, the collection, was a chronicle of the 20 years prior to that. So the, it, it got a bit truncated in its current incarnation for other reasons in terms of the way the stories related to each other individually. That is one thing because the novel is, is actually about a community as well. It's called The Descendants. It's about a community where a medical experiment that is somewhat modeled on the Tuskegee experiment took place. And it is about the descendants of the survivors of that experiment, but it's set in the same community. So that was one thing. And then uh, the other thing that I've been thinking about is the cultural and social impact of the war on drugs. So in the novel, I'm trying to link it to sort of a larger African-American history. But it does, it does play a huge part in terms of how I'm conceptualizing the novel as a whole. These years in the short story collection are maximum impact years of the war on drugs. But I was really interested in part on its effects on language and how people talked about racism and race during this period. One way to think about it is as exemplifying a means of implementing policies that had very racist outcomes without actually referencing race. So they weren't targeting black and brown people. They weren't targeting working class people. They were targeting drug addicts, crack addicts. So you, you could talk about it without actually saying black people, for example. This is after the civil rights movement. It's no longer socially sanctioned in a sense to be like overtly racist. You can't just say we're gonna implement these policies because these people are black, right? And, and so they're gonna be segregated or whatever. So people talk about that a lot. I mean, there's a lot, a lot that's been written about it, and I was really specifically interested in, in the impact that had on language in terms of talking about race and racism, because I think it was difficult to have like very direct conversations about racism during this period, in part because of that. And it is because they were talking about crack and crack addicts, and basically the public still had 
racist stereotypes in mind and crack was usually used by by black people while powder cocaine right so that's another way you could talk about targeting is in terms of the penalties for possession were exponentially higher for crack and there's like class associations between their two like different incarnations of basically the same drug but there are class implications with them as well and they're also racial ones when you look at the way black people were represented like in popular culture drug addicts they're they're very threatening there's something like inherently predatory about them and so they need to be locked up and put away so yes i do think it was racialized one of the things when i think about images of black people during that period like in tv and uh, on movies is sort of the bifurcation of black identity in terms of class so and in part that's an effect because no we're not talking about black people we're talking about drug addict. So you had images of middle class, acceptable, good black people. And then you sort of had all of these images of, of really like violent drug dealers. And there's a story in the collection called Crack Babies, because I think that's like sort of the most poignant example of that discourse, because basically there was a lot of talk as if an entire generation of children was basically ruined from birth because of their drug addicted mothers. So you mean that the notion of the crack baby itself was kind of a myth? I think the New York Times called it a myth crafted from equal parts bad science and racist yes. stereotypes. There you go, so, you have notes on yeah. crack baby. That's funny, there's a story in the collection called that. But yeah, yeah, things like that. It's pretty fascinating. I think it made it very difficult to have like a really honest, explicit conversation about race because all of these things were sort of filtering through the public sphere and there was a lot of like obfuscation in terms of what are we really talking about here. There were certainly lots of ways that you could say, no, we're not talking about race at all. We're talking about totally different things. I don't know why you always play the race card or bring it back to race, you know, and I, so I was very interested in that period. Yeah. And what is the reception of that period of time today? So do you think that there's a history of the war on drugs that has been agreed upon, which you try to challenge in your novel? I think I'm really more engaged with the repercussions of it itself, that period of history. So I do, I mean, I think there's been a lot of recognition of the ways in which it was not very equitable. And then you had books like The New Jim Crow. That had a huge impact on how people think about and talk about these issues. It had a huge impact on me myself. But again, like in terms of the book, I was really interested in language. So when you say language or dehumanizing language, you mean something like, so I read a piece by an opinion writer from the Washington Post, and he claimed that black women created a bio underclass, like this, as you said, damaged future generation. Right. So that is what you're talking about. Yes, right? it's, it's just fascinating to me the way these things could sort of be couched in like, you know, this is colorblind policy it has nothing to do with that. And I think quite revealingly, no one ever made like similar suggestions about being exposed to powder cocaine, right? Which right. was That's used right. by rich white people. Yes. Right? Yeah. So stuff like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what that represented and sort of the long-term effects. I was also very interested in the fact that Obama's election was, was sort of the pinnacle of the idea of post-racialism, like, oh, we're, we've transcended all of that. And that instead, what seemed to happen was a renewed conversation about race. I find that really fascinating. I think the way in which people talked about race changed shortly after 
this, I think. Maybe it's just the processing of what had, had actually happened or what it meant to have the first sort of black or non-white male president of the United States. That is quite interesting and revealing. But what do you think is the reason that politicians and the media focused so much on black mothers? And that's interesting that you're bringing this up because the novel is very pointedly about how black women experience the history of, of African-American women and the ways African-Americans women are, are represented specifically and how they deal with that is also a big part of what the novel is about. So that's a complicated question okay. that, that's hard. I think black women are often scapegoated in this way. I mean, maybe that's why it's easy to do because people are used to that. I've been thinking about that from a lot of different angles lately. Yeah. Okay, but maybe we can go back to the Tuskegee experiment that you also mentioned. So that is also thematically a huge part of the novel you're writing. Yes. Would you like to tell us a bit more about that? It's really one example because there's a lot of examples that I could have used, but it's so, um, it's like the most famous one. It was a study of the progress of syphilis, and it was a government-sponsored experiment on African-American men in a small town in the South, and it went on for 40 years from the 1930s until I think someone that was working on the project became like a whistleblower that they were doing this, and they, told, they were telling the men that they were treating them, and they weren't. They just wanted to track the progress of the disease. I'm using that as like a basis for it, but it is really just the most famous example of the way in which people that are considered marginalized, I, I don't mean even just in terms of black people. I think it's really interesting to me in terms of how marginalized people are exploited in this way and become resources for research. There's always been marginal people in the United States that are available as a resource in some people's minds to be used as this because they're not considered full citizens. So that's that's part of where all of that is coming from as well. But speaking of descendants, let us maybe move on to your writing processes and yeah, talk more about you as well. So speaking of descendants, who would you say are your literary descendants? So are there any any authors or writers that you feel like being in a tradition with? I would draw a distinctive lineage with African-American writers. People ask me that, and I, I usually say because it is actually the truth, in particular, uh, Toni Morrison. And I, I say it more since she has passed because it's this is a way for me to evoke her myself, but she certainly was enormously influential just in terms of demonstrating the possibilities of language for me. But I draw inspiration from so many different writers. I can say that like in terms of the form of a novel, like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man was enormously influential on in me. I remember the first time I read Gene Toomer's Cain, that was enormously influential on me. Amiri Baraka, the poetry of Amiri Baraka in particular, and uh, Tony Cade Bambara, there, there are lots of writers that had huge impacts on me, and not all of them are American or, or African-American either. Uh, I was very struck by Bessie Head when I was younger, reading um, Bessie Head. Actually, it's hard to, to summarize. I see myself as part of a tradition of African-American writers in particular. That is like 
family that inspires me. I don't know, it's hard to add because I, I write. I write all the time. So I think about books all the time and I try to read as widely as possible as well. So you say that you write all the time and writing for you is a means of addressing certain questions that you have in your head. Can you tell us which questions initiated the descendants and did you find any answers here in Berlin? There are things that are actually happening in, in society or in history that I'm, I'm interested in or that concern me or trouble me in some way. And I can't always fix it as fiction. And I don't really want to do that. I think that, that it, it helps me to formulate questions. It helps to clarify my thoughts and to see new links between sometimes very um, disparate elements that I feel like there's something going on inside the intersection between different ideas. So that's why I said like the war on drugs and the use of African-American, the wider history of the use of African-Americans in medical trials. So to figure out what that means to me, I feel like I learn a lot through the process of, of writing. The actual impulse had to do with, with me thinking about the erasure of black women, how black women are used, their material and conceptual resource in the United States. And they've contributed so much to the culture, and yet those contributions are, are, are so frequently subject to erasure. And I think on a certain level, maybe that is the connection for me, or it's part of it with the war on drugs. That is actually how the, the book came about as an idea. So they're very interrelated. And, and so maybe it's trying to explore or unpack what is it about those intersections that interest me. Like, what is it that I'm actually feeling in terms of how these things relate to each other? And the act of writing often helps me to sort of clarify that and to see it more clearly. I was very interested in sort of stepping outside the context of the United States to think about it. So it's been interesting to me to explore a lot of the dynamics from a different cultural perspective and to think about, for example, how the representation of history happens here in contrast to the United States. How are people dealing with sort of difficult legacies and things like that? And also there's a lot in terms of how racial difference, cultural difference, is experienced here versus in the United States as well. Because I think looking at a different context helps to clarify what is specific to the context that you're writing about. But I often feel that the public discourse about racism in Germany always lags a bit behind. What do you think about that? Is that your impression I, as well? I think it's really hard to not be conscious of it in the, in the United States, at least right now. I actually have a cousin who, who moved here. She's lived here for like, I think like 20 years. And her experiences, they seem very, very different, but it's not really an absence. They're just different. Maybe feeling like alienation or there isn't really a context to talk about certain issues here. That's what I've heard expressed from her, as opposed to in, in the U.S. Where, where people actually talk about it quite a bit. You're usually living in New Orleans, so in the South. And in an interview with The Guardian in 2017, you said that there are a lot of Southern writers who are not old white guys in linen suits, but maybe they don't get so much attention. What or who is a Southern writer for you? And would you describe yourself as one? I never 
really lived in the South. My grandparents lived in the South, and I would visit them every summer, but I wasn't educated. In they the lived South. in Florida? They lived yeah. in Florida. So, and, and you know, and I, li I grew up in um, partially in Oakland and then in the, the Virgin Islands and then in upstate or in New York. People tell me it's not actually upstate. And then I went to college in, uh, in New Jersey and Los Angeles, so not really lived in the South. And then I did write a book that was set in Florida. So I think at the time, no, I hadn't really thought about myself as like regionally specific in terms of subject matter, because the book is set in the South. But I hadn't really thought about it in terms of like sensibility or maybe like preoccupations that that evidence themselves in the text like as a southern writer so it kind of surprised me and then it did it made me think of what does the term southern writer evoke for me and so that's how why I answered in that manner but so. I think New Orleans might be like a unique place in the south as well right and I yes. think you said to me before that you you've written about Florida but yeah. you don't want to write about New Orleans. So yes, why, why you is know, that? Well, that's interesting too. I feel like Saint, the south side of St. Petersburg, Florida that I've written about, but nobody, very few people have been there. So it's like it's sort of a blank space. And I think that um, New Orleans looms so large in, in popular imaginations that it would be challenging to write about it unless you actually wanted to deal with all of that. In terms of how I represented certain things, I would have to be aware of sort of popular representations of it and sort of the history of representations of it and what New Orleans means. Tell us more about that. So what do people actually think uh, when, when they hear or think about New Orleans? Well, Katrina certainly looms large. There's all kinds of associations with um, Mardi Gras. And, mm -hmm. and as a place people come to, to party. And someone was saying that it's a place where people come to sort of fall apart. I'm, I'm giving up all pretense to like respectability. I'm gonna go to New Orleans and just drink or something like that. And then I think also the, um, even prior to that, I was saying that uh, often when I read books that like of a certain era that saying someone like a, a ostensibly white character is from New Orleans is sort of implying that they're they're not really white, right? Because of then you have that whole other history of intermixture, I don't know what you call it, but it's always been sort of this exotic landscape. So it has served uh, I think a lot in terms of how the United States sees itself as a whole, a lot of things sort of have gotten funneled out and and placed on and in New Orleans as like this liminal space. Also, it is a, it's a really complicated place to feel like I'm from there. And I'm not really from there, even though I've lived there for a very, very long time. But I think it, I would feel like I was in dialogue with a whole lot of things. I think it's like the challenge of, of engaging all of that for me. And that might just be the way my, it is the way my mind works. It's probably not true. Tons of people write stories and books that are set in New Orleans. That's just me Personally, probably my mind would, would go there and then I, it would become like something I have to, to deal with. And one day I will. I will one day. That's it for this episode. 
You can listen to more of our Beyond the Lecture series on our website, americanacademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, or watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and on Twitter. Our show today was produced and edited by Juliana Schadow. I'm your host, Denise Gammon, from the American Academy in Berlin. Thanks for listening. Thank you.